0: Welcome to Pod Academy, and Oxford. We're here to make a series of programs about the ethnographic recordings that are part of the Pitt Rivers Collection, part of the University of Oxford. In other programs we'll learn some more about the museum's Real to Real project, and listen in detail to some of the recordings. But here we're going to ask some general questions about ethnomusicology. Firstly what is it, and then how it relates to anthropology and music and more generally, how it can add value to our understanding of the world. We'll do this through speaking to Noel Lobley, the museum's own ethnomusicologist, and hear some of his personal experiences with ethnomusicology. I'm Joe Barrett, and other than Noel, you will hear the voice of Sarah Winkler-Reed from the University of Bristol, who's helped put this series together. So now, allow me to pass you over to Noel.
1: What is ethnomusicology? Uh, that is a good question, and it's been debated and argued about, of course, uh, for uh, at least the last 60 years or so. Ethnomusicology is, was coined as an academic term in 1959 by Yap Kunst, um, a scholar, a Dutch scholar who worked predominantly in Indonesia, um, he coined it academically. Before that, ethnomusicology was, was really known as comparative musicology. Simplistically, I think, if you like, it's the social and cultural study of music. It's very interdisciplinary. Um, it was originally, uh, if you like, a divergence from more traditional musicology, which was very much about Western art music, very much about the canon, German composers, this is the only music that matters. Um, Ethnomusicologists were those that started to be interested in Indian music and Chinese music and African music, folk music, just the variety of musics that are out there in the world and realised that the the musicological approach, um, transcription, score-based analysis, doesn't necessarily apply or doesn't necessarily even help in other traditions. So if you listen to gamelan music, the tuning system doesn't work anything like what we understand as harmony and things like this. So we, I think musicologists realised they needed different methods of dealing with different musics. So And they are interested in, they always say it's the study of music in culture, the study of music as culture, the study of all the human processes that are important in the making of music, which might include psychology, biology, what happens in the cells, what happens at a cellular level. But I think the most important threads and strands are still the anthropological approach to music which means obviously participant observation field work long-term immersion with a culture ethnomusicology used to be defined by what it studied it isn't anymore because ethnomusicologists study western art music as well they study techno they study hip-hop they study noise art you know it's it is I, I don't think there's a genre of music or sound that ethnomusicologists don't look at now um it's not just traditional music from africa or, or traditional music from india or something like this but um yeah i'd say the social and cultural study of music trying to find interdisciplinary ways to understand what it enables us to make music and in some cases that includes non-human processes so there's more research into things like the relationship between and insect sounds and our music, bird sounds and our music, whale songs and our music, um, the natural environment and our music. So um, it's a very vibrant and very exciting area of musical study.
0: This leads the recording, recorded sound, to be the primary source that you're using? In in the development of
1: ethnomusicology, recording has been hugely influential. The making of the ethnographic recordings, where scholars, researchers, travellers, anthropologists, went somewhere and made their recordings since the invention of the phonograph in 1877. It has been probably the central method, alongside participant observation. Ethnomusicologists did used to do analysis through just recordings, and those recordings might not have been made by them. So they can listen to the recorded objects, and they might get it wrong because they might not understand the context. They don't know what went into making the recording. If they've been recorded too fast and there's no pitch reference, it's like you can make mistakes straight away. But yeah, the recorded object has been hugely, hugely influential. Um, we have made Millions and millions of hours of these ethnographic recordings, piled them up in sound archives or still in private collections, very good at making those documents. But then the next stage of what to do with those documents is, is not always as obvious. Traditionally, the recordings quite often would be, once they have been transcribed, might be discarded the actual recording themselves wasn't, weren't necessarily viewed as being intrinsically important. It was important to record because it's, it's hard work to transcribe but uh, in real time and things like this. And the moment you record, you, you make it isolatable um, and more sort of uh, subject to analysis. Until relatively recently, it wasn't necessarily accepted that you could use pre-existing recordings as the basis for original research. Um, it used to be, okay, you should make your own recordings, um, and it, rather than go in and, let's say, analyse the recordings that Lewis Sarno made. But now, within archival studies and ethnomusicology, there's much more of a, an acceptance that the, the, these recorded objects, these ethnographic, whatever's in them, this knowledge, it's there to be used for original research now, and we're at a time when we're really beginning to try and organise and process those. A lot of ethnomusicologists would tell you that the defining methodology is still participant observation.
0: Can you talk a bit more about what an ethnomusicologist would actually do in the field?
1: Maybe I'll give it from my own perspective, because people have different approaches. I went to study rural music from the Eastern Cape of South Africa, which functions very, very differently to to what I know through music here. You traditionally go and spend a year, minimum of a year, as part of your PhD training um, Immersing yourself in the musical culture that you're interested in. Um, you would be trained already in certain things like fieldwork, recording technology, um, ethics, all these kind of things. And then your job is to, is to kind of find, in many ways, the local frame of reference for music making rather than sort of presupposing what is important musically. Um, lots of long, lots of interviews, lots of, and, and you'd have a musical exchange. So, as an ethnomusicologist, you would probably end up learning to play the music that you're studying. Um, Mantle Hood came up, who wrote a book called The Ethnomusicologist. he came up with this concept of um, bimusicality. A bit like being bilingual, but in music, so if you're schooled in um, cello, um, you then go and study Sarangi in India, and you become an apprentice and you study, um, you, become a, you, you study with a master, and you learn from within. John Blacking, a famous ethnomusicologist who worked um, amongst the vendor in the northern part of South Africa, he made the move of studying children's songs. He thought, OK, within, amongst the vendor, you learn to sing from a child, from a child upwards, um, and then you, you, know, you learn different songs for age sets and groups. So he, um, as, who would have been in his 30s at the time, I think, turned himself back effectively into a child and, and started learning children's songs, and that changed his status. I've studied quite a few instruments while I've been going along, both um, Mbiras, I uh, studied Gamelan music as well. And when I was in the Eastern Cape of South Africa, um, I began to try and learn some of the bows uh, and some of the songs. The community I was working amongst, are a Xhosa community, which is X-H-O-S-A, Xhosa is a click language. and So I studied the language, um, because obviously the language influences um, the music making. You hear these hip-hop artists just exploding with clicks, like... Imagine that through hip hop, you know, it's explode. So, studied the language and then started to study um, some of the songs because also music is more vocal than there are bows, but there's not a huge drumming tradition or anything like that. And so, um, yeah, began to hang out with musicians spent a year it involves a lot of drinking in bars and musicians it's not a bad job Um, and finding out how they make music and what's important to them what they want to say about their music um, and and how you can begin to share about it and 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 to explain why you're interested in that music yeah so yeah did did learn some um, begin to learn some of the um, instruments and songs
0: Uh, do you think getting involved with making the music changed your status among the people you were studying
1: Definitely, yeah. We're we're very lucky in ethnomusicology that if you, once you've had a musical exchange, it tends to enable things. When anthropological fieldwork, there's that classic moment when it's like, well, why should we tell you all of these things that you want to know about? How is this? If you go and work in the the the, the, the the Eastern Cape of South Africa, amongst poor communities, and you come in as a researcher. There is a like, well, why should we tell you all of this? What what's in this for us? And, and and absolutely rightly so, you have to find a reason to explain why you're doing it, why it might begin to help communities I don't mean that in a in a kind of patronizing way but you know when you have musical exchanges or you um perhaps you I mean one huge thing was to share a lot of music with musicians most of the musicians I was working with in East Cape of South Africa were interested in hip-hop I had a massive library of hip-hop music which we listened to on my laptop I I bought some CDs for people and the moment you do this exchanges start to happen it's like it's the classic gift idea isn't it in anthropology that there needs to be an exchange there needs to be a gift but yeah ethnomusicological fieldwork is not really possible without a musical exchange and it does change your status because if you're a musician you have some of the skills that are important to musicians in communities and so there's there's there is some kind of um shared platform there and just sharing songs in the it? classic round the campfire or or around the pub or you know that that it does it does change your status but sharing music and in if you make recordings sharing them back with communities so i was based at a music archive called the International Library of African Music in Grahamstown in the Eastern Cape of South Africa. And there, this is the world's largest archive of of, um, ethnographic music from sub-Saharan Africa. And while I was there and I was interested in it, um, I realised there were 200 Hossler recordings um, on the doorstep of Hossler communities and they had no idea that they were there. So I started hanging out with musicians and they were like in the townships, which are predominantly black, exclusively black, most of them. And everyone's like, what the hell are you doing here? And I thought... Good question. And um, and then I was like, oh, I'm interested in your music. And did you know that there were these recordings of of some of your awesome music from 50, 60 years ago in, in this archive? And most musicians were like, I had no idea. And I said, do you want to hear it? And everyone's like yeah so i started finding musicians local artists and people and and said and and started hanging out with them you know just following what they were doing their hip-hop their theater and and then just asking them about this this heritage are you interested in this and they're like absolutely i'm like well why don't people come to the archive and everyone's like the archive's nothing to do with this it's part of the university we like the townships are nothing like a well-funded research institution you know they said if you want it heard i'll show you Hire a donkey cart, bring those songs on a tape. I'll round up my musicians and artist friends. We'll learn those songs. We'll travel around the township on a donkey cart, singing them, and people will come. We then play them in a sound system on the street. Watch this. And so that's what we did. And I thought, okay, I'm up for this. We did it and played them on the street as if people would have heard hip-hop or house. These are the most popular music forms in South African townships, gospel. Played these field recordings, and people came. And these young guys said, this is our heritage, tell us stories about it. And elders came forward and said, I know this song from this village and things like that. It, it was a way of taking the archive and putting it back on the street, if you like. And, that's, and that felt to me like that's, the, that's more of an exchange. That's, that's finding a way to share the music back where it came from, I think.
0: It's a really good sense of music being something which is alive and constantly changing and constantly evolving. but at the same time has this rich History and depth, which is is meaningful and people can relate to from the past. It's quite it's quite interesting to how you can affect things by bringing in new songs, but also taking people back to the, the form of their music, which was where it's come from.
1: This is it, you know. That the, the classic line of um, anthropology and ethnomusicology is very aware of its colonial past. You know, go out there, collect the empire, show it back. You know, and um, the, the, the 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 strain that goes through a lot of this is this salvage anthropology, where you go and document something because you perceive that it is disappearing, it's changing. Let's get it recorded, photographed, documented before it's too late because of urbanisation. Say in the case of the rural, um, the Eastern Cape of South Africa, mass rural to urban migration to work on the mines. The music is changing. Community life is changing fast and music is changing fast. Um, You know, Songs that were about village ethics no longer work that way anymore because perhaps some of the family are away for three quarters of the year and this and the other... And uh, the, the salvage anthropology side, which is let's document this, which is what Hugh Tracy did. He's the one that built the collection that I worked on in South Africa. Sometimes that can overlook the reasons why music changes. Musical change because children aren't interested in it, um, you know, or because the musical transmission changes. And to record an oral culture um, where perhaps they don't record themselves is not necessarily true to how the music transmits and functions within a community. And the difficulty of any sound archive is you can't archive a culture you can take a record a snapshot of what it sounds like and perhaps what it looks like but you can't archive those processes that, that make that organic and make it breathe but what you can do is find a way for an archive to, to continue a meaningful relationship with that culture putting sounds back amongst people you know, which headphone appointments, research appointments, even websites, don't really achieve, do they? I mean, there are social experiences through the web, and, and we know this, and through smartphones, and but yeah, and uh, and what was fascinating to me, say so that what I learned in South Africa was that. Um, yeah, to put those recordings back amongst the way people actually experience music, which is in the bars, on the streets, in the yards, in the schoolrooms, in the old people's homes, where they talk. This is a community of storytellers, OK? They're not a community. They come in for research appointments. And uh, these townships, I should stress, are very poor, chaotic, marginalised places. Like, the, the, there is, you know, there's plenty of music and culture, but they are, they are quite hard places to live in, you know? The culture inevitably suffers, we noticed this with my friends Nyakon Zimatsana and Oli Le these two guys without whom I could never have done this. They, 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 they basically created this pathway for, for this to happen. We we'd, we'd bring recordings in um, to people's house ha- and it would lead to ceremonies. It would lead to, uh, the recording would trigger something and then a ceremony would start happening. People would almost then ignore the recording. It doesn't matter anymore. It's just it's kick-started something, and now ah oh, now we're talking about something. Now songs are coming, you know. So it became it became a trigger to yes, yeah, so I suppose to connect with some kind of musical heritage and what's happening today. But yes, yeah, so, but putting it amongst people is a, is such a fascinating thing to try and do with what is a you know it's a disembodied MP3. The
0: way you describe the fieldwork sounds very much like social anthropology. So yeah. what the relationship is between social anthropology and ethnomusicology?
1: Most ethnomusicologists will be trained in music and anthropology as well. There's a difference in the, in the UK and America. Um, here in the UK, it's still heavily done through music departments. My PhD in ethnomusicology is technically part of this. It's actually defil in social and cultural anthropology here. My wife is also an ethnomusicologist, did a very similar degree, but working in West Africa is a defil in music here, because ethnomusicology swung from the anthropology department back to the music department. So, but actually, in terms of our research methods, are exactly the same. That I don't think there's any necessarily intellectual difference between social anthropology, ethnomusicology, and not all anthropologists would be trained in musicology. But that doesn't mean you can't become an ethnomusicologist. You know, um, musicologists increasingly deal with sound studies and things like this. You know, the relationship is. Pointing back towards music is introducing musicologists to the notion of fieldwork because their traditional training wouldn't be based on fieldwork. Lots of musicologists now do ethnographies of orchestras and, and, and amateur orchestras and things like this, which involves hanging out with the orchestras and, and, and learning to do ethnography. You know, which is the is the observation. And then from the music perspective, it it brings musical skills back to anthropology. I mean, lots of people are musically trained to a certain degree, Um, you know, whether it be through instrument or reading music or something like this. You know, anthropologists tended to ignore music historically. uh, I'm speaking very generally here, but two of the reasons were that um, I don't think they thought it was important, it was just entertainment. And I think it's also, uh, if you don't feel you're musically trained, you think, well, I don't really know how to deal with that. Um, I'll leave that to others. The Royal Anthropological Institute have just reconvened their um, Ethnomusicology committee. They used to have an Ethnomusicology committee in the 1950s. That committee, which was designed, um, which was populated by Raymond Clawson and and John Blacking and and Alan um, A.M. Jones, and and well-known Ethnomusicologists of the time, they kind of of wanted Ethnomusicology to get out there in more anthropology departments and things, and then that kind of committee kind of just dissolved and then ethnomusicology took a big swing back to music departments. And so an ethnomusicologist will almost definitely be employed in a music department in this country. The, R, the RAI, the Royal Anthropological Institute, have just reconvened that committee, and this is partly to try and get ethnomusicology back into anthropology departments, recognising that very few of us are employed in anthropology departments now in the UK. So I think that that relationship is being re-explored. The you know, top-level anthropologists are realising that it's, it's worth integrating the ethnomusicology back into anthropology, because it's such an important part of culture. Music and sound is such a huge part of, not of every culture, but of many cultures. If you you miss that, you're missing something important. We're definitely at a time, and I've talked to other sound curators about this, where there's definitely a real, genuine growth of interest in sound archives, what's in them and what you can do with them. There's various reasons for this. I think one of them is as prosaic, as it's actually quite hard to get funding now to go and do long-term fieldwork. um, If you want to go to Africa or wherever you want to go, it might be London, it's quite hard to get that funding now for various reasons. And I think a lot of people are starting to turn to things like archives, museums. Um, Museums and archives have been hugely influential in the development of anthropology and and ethnomusicology. Since we've put our archive up there online, we've had a lot of requests to come and find out what's in there, work with them, and things like this. We have an important sound archive here, but I mean, there are much bigger sound archives the British Library, um, the Library of Congress in Washington, the Berlin Phonogram Archive. There's such a kind of wash of recordings out there now that actually there's this strong desire for things to be curated. You know, how do you find your way through SoundCloud or, or Spotify or something like this? I mean, people curate themselves. Obviously, you, you build your own playlists. But I think there's also this kind of... It's its helpful to find curated streams of things, you know, like the, by the experts that are perhaps the... Whether it be Diplo or something like this, doing uh, taking care of the electronic and, and dubstep side of things, but also the ethnographic side of things. It's very helpful um, if it's curated and the information is there for people. So, But, yeah, I mean, kids come interested a lot more, researchers, general audiences. There's definitely a turn. And I say it's partly because it's now... Um, more and more stuff is getting put out there online, and with more information, um, and there are innovative projects to get them heard. It's it's also and actually a crucial strand within this is that is the real growth of sound studies, um, and that's something that really interests me. Um, I'm really interested in the relationship between ethnomusicology and sound studies, and sound studies are much more practitioners, composers, those that and their notion of field recording. Like, you know, so field recordings now it's not just ethnographic recordings made in the Eastern Cape of South Africa or in the Central African Republic. But, you know, recordings made in people's bathrooms on the street, the sounds of the street. Now, these influence people like John Cage, Pierre Schaeffer, Stravinsky. You, you know, the people listen to these, Duke Ellington, li- listen to the, the, these kind of more environmental recordings, if you like. But, but sound studies is a real, real growth area at the moment. The notion of the personal soundscape is is, is becoming more and more influential if you like because anyone can make a recording anyone can make a high quality recording of their soundscape if they know it well to make a good recording you just have to know what you're listening for it doesn't even have to have superb technique and i think that that development has and the interest of composers and avant-garde composers in the sorts of things that are in archives like the sound archive at the Pitt rivers has made things more i hesitate to use the word fashionable but made it more creative i think
0: that was Noel lovely at the Pitt rivers museum talking us through the field of ethnomusicology. This podcast is part of a series about the audio collections at the museum. Listen to the others to learn more about the Real to Real project, and how collections of this kind can have an impact in museums, as well as the real world. We'll also take a more detailed look at some of the recordings in the collection. All of these podcasts, as well as many others, can be accessed on podacademy.org.